are uh, in the book of Revelation, which is a, an explosively uh, dynamic, powerful piece of writing uh, that the Apostle John wrote somewhere around A.D. 95, at the age of about 95, 96 years of age. Uh, the Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos. All the other apostles have been either crucified or burned alive or somehow martyred for their faith, and yet John remains. And he uh, has received an apocalypsis, which is the Greek word for an unveiling, a revelation for what will happen in the future. Some of these things have already happened. I believe most of them have not, especially uh, what we're going to be reading here in Revelation chapter 7. Do I sound okay to y'all? I sound good? All right, I'm just, just make sure. Y'all, okay, good, good. Just make sure I'm not um, hollow. Sometimes I am hollow, but I don't want to sound hollow. Oh, that song has kind of got, gotten over me. So, Revelation chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. And before I do, let me, let me share a true account from church history, a man by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was born in 1717 in Gloucester, England. Guys, y'all got to take that reverb out. It's, it's, it's on my ears. Um, I don't know if it's up here on the monitors. Thank you. Thank you very much. Amen. So, George Whitfield, born in 1714. He died in Massachusetts, New England, in 1770. As a young boy growing up in England, he had, early on, people could tell, he had a very powerful voice and a gift for theatrics and a gift for uh, acting. So he went to uh, Oxford University, and in 1735, he, at 20 years of age, converted to Christianity, gave his life to Christ. Also about that time, two of his best friends, two men you may have heard of, John and Charles Wesley, founders of the Methodist denomination, they too also committed their lives to Christ, and they were known as, at Oxford, they were known as the Holy Club. And they met for prayer and fasting and reading and memorizing the New Testament. And so God birthed within George Whitfield this amazing gift of the evangelist. He came over to America often, and God used him to be the catalyst for what historians call the first Great Awakening. The dates of the Great Awakening are 1726 to about 1776. And God used George Whitfield. He would come back and forth across the Atlantic seven different times. And on his last journey in 1770, he preached to a large group of people. They literally came to the home that he was staying. And he noticed that there was such a throng of people outside. He said, you know, even though I'm not feeling well, I must preach you people a sermon or you're not going to leave. They just couldn't get enough of the Word of God. So he took a candle, and he preached a message from God's Word. And when the candle went out, he went to bed, and he woke up in eternity. One of his best friends was a man that I know you've heard of, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin would have George Whitfield stay in his home when he would come from England and preach these massive crusades. Benjamin Franklin, who such an inventor, such a gifted mind, never did convert to Christianity. In fact, he told George Whitfield, he said, I love you, but I just don't know your Christ. I never will know your Christ. And so George Whitfield, it was said by Benjamin Franklin that he could preach to 25,000 people with no amplification, obviously, no microphones in the 1800s, and George Whitfield's voice could be heard from a half a mile away. Now, I'm telling you, a robust, energetic, dynamic, 
powerful speaking voice. But George Whitfield, not only did God use him to see the conversion of many in these early nascent colonies of the United States, but Whitfield had a real passion for social causes. Uh, when he was in Georgia, he established the Bethesda Orphanage there in Savannah. But he was also responsible for the formation of some schools that I think you would recognize. Earl Cairns is a church historian, has his Ph.D. from the University of Nebraska, and this is what he said about Whitfield. The tabernacle erected for George Whitfield's preaching in Philadelphia became a charity school which later became the University of Pennsylvania. He also helped Samuel Davies and Gilbert Tennant raise money for the College of New Jersey. And the Presbyterians called that College of New Jersey Princeton University. He also aided Samson Ockham in the, the Indian preacher in raising a large sum for what would become Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. George Whitfield, one of the heroes of our Christian faith. Since the Reformation, there have been four major massive spiritual awakenings. I used to teach and lecture on these things, so just indulge me for just a moment as I share with you the four major spiritual awakenings. The first one I already gave to you, men like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, 1726 to 1776. It started, some believe, in England and just swept across the colonies in the United States. The second great awakening, men like Moody and Finney, 1792 till about 1843. The third great awakening, 1858, massive revival. Ten percent of the United States of America was converted in 1858. And it all began with a, a layman by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear. In New York City, he just began to pray, and they began to expand their prayer meeting until literally a tenth of the United States was converted. Then 1904 to 1908 is known as the great Welsh revival that became the global, global awakening with Evan Roberts. Many people believe, oh, I want to be one of those. Like Robert Coleman who says that before Jesus Christ comes again, we will experience a revival and an awakening of the proportions that they experienced in those four great awakenings. I'm so desperate for this. I, I genuinely believe, I know God can do it, but I'm so, oh, wouldn't it be awesome if 10% of the 300 million, that would be 30 million people converted to Christ. Would that not be awesome here in the United States? Well, I do know for a fact that there is coming an awakening unlike any other awakening. And of all times, it's going to happen in what we know as the Great Tribulation. In Revelation chapter 7, God seals. He reserves these 144,000 powerful Jewish evangelist who will preach Christ crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and multitudes all over the planet will be converted to Christ. It's right here between the sixth seal judgment and the seventh seal judgment. We noticed last time all these cosmic disturbances, all of these upheavals, and all of these people dying, and many people, not all, but many who are crying out in anger to God. Oh, that the mountains would fall upon us and hide us from the face of the wrath of Almighty God. And yet, in God's wrath, He remembers His mercy. In fact, that's the title of my message today. In wrath, remember mercy. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of justice. 
In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament that God will in no way acquit the wicked. The wicked have to come in repentance and faith, and then and only then will God uh, justify them and forgive them. So here we have in this massive revival, we see God for a moment. It's like He suspends His wrath. And he turns with great grace and compassion and mercy. And in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, there is a throng of people, a multitude from all the nations of the world, and they gather together in salvation. And I believe it's because of the dynamic witness of these George, Whit George Whitfields, Billy Graham, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, these kind of men who go out and preach the gospel right during the heart of the great tribulation. So the Bible says in Revelation chapter 7, let's pick it up in verse 1 where it says, after these things, meaning the sixth seal judgment, after these cosmic upheavals, after this cat catastrophic events on planet earth, it's like it suspends, and, and John says, and after all of that, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Now, when you go to chapter 8, you will see that those angels release the fiery winds of judgment. And the earth, the, the grass, the trees, the sea, I mean, it is thrown again into turmoil as God judges planet earth, all right? But before that happens, in between the sixth and the seventh seal judgment, John sees this vision where he says, And I saw another angel. And this angel ascended from the east, having the seal, the sphragis. The sphragis, that's an important word I'm talking to you about in a moment. The seal of the zanos, the living God. And he cried out, this, this angel cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. And this one angel, who is ascending out of the east, said to the four angels, north, south, east, and west, he rose up and he said, don't, don't even begin, is a good translation of that Greek word right there, don't even begin to harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And John said, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then John lists the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says, of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. You recognize these names? These are the sons of... Jacob, and these are the 12 tribes of Israel, of Naphtali, 12,000 sealed, Manasseh, 12,000 sealed, Simeon, 12,000 were sealed, and of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, help me church, how many? Amen, you're listening, we're sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. Revelation 7, 1 through 8. What an amazing passage of Scripture. In the midst of the wrath of God, in the midst of the judgment of God, it's like God just unleashes one more time, a time of awakening and revival upon planet Earth. In this phrase, in wrath, remember mercy. 
I've taken it from Habakkuk chapter 3. Let me read it to you. It says, O Lord, I have heard your speech, and I was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Look at that. Habakkuk 3, 2. In wrath, remember mercy. Look at that, guys. That's God. God is awesome. God is just. God is a God of wrath. He is a God of of justice, but He's also a God of mercy and compassion and grace. Let me tell you the greatest example of when God in His wrath remembered mercy. It was about 2,000 years ago when His Son, Jesus Christ, died upon the cross. The Bible calls this the propitiation. The propitiation is where holy God pours out His wrath upon an individual who appeases His wrath, and the only individual who could ever appease and withhold the wrath of God was none other than God Himself in Jesus Christ. So get this, on the cross, on the cross, Jesus died. And on the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God, the wrath of God, the justice of God, the indignation of God that was destined toward me, because I am a sinner. I sin by nature. I sin by choice. I started sinning when the moment I came out of the womb. I am a sinful person, and so are you. And we deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. However, however, there was one who said, oh God, I will bear hell for them. I endure all the wrath of God, all the indignation of God, all the justice of God. I bear it on the cross, and they go free, and you and I go free. We get to spend eternity in heaven because one bore the sins of many. The Bible says, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. You know that word where it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that one moment, God the Father turns His back on God the Son as the Son becomes sin for all who will believe. In wrath, God always remembers mercy. If you're here today, I implore you, I beseech you, before you taste the wrath of God for eternity, would you place your faith in Jesus Christ and bypass His wrath? You see, if you will believe upon Him, and, and submit your volition, your will to the will of God and say, God, that's right, I do deserve death. I do deserve your wrath. I am sinful. Everybody knows that. And I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus, would you impute to me your righteousness to my unrighteousness? And guess what? When you do that, we call it the great exchange. And you get to live in freedom and forgiveness of sin. And you get to die and go to heaven. Hallelujah. No wonder they call grace so amazing. So I only have one point in the sermon today. It's called the sealed uh, of Israel. And what I want to do is just walk through this text with you and just highlight some of the things uh, in in our text today. So we have the sealed of Israel. John says in verse 1, after these things, after the sixth sealed judgment, he sees these four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, I know critics of Scripture, at this point they come along and say, you see, the Bible is full of errors because everybody knows the earth is not flat. The earth is a spherical shape, and there are no four corners of the earth. Do you all know there are actually people who do that? 
They, they go through the Bible and they look for any kind of residue of anything that might be inconsistent. And they build this whole case upon a God they don't even believe in. And they start attacking Scripture. But before you do, I would say this is just a pure example of phenomenological language. Phenomenological language simply says the sun rises in the, and it sets in the, but it really doesn't, right? But nobody accuses the meteorologists for being these awful, goofy, uneducated people. It's phenomenological language. Four corners of the earth of a spherical earth. I was reading this one guy. I mean, I tell you, this guy's um, off the chain, off the chart smart. Uh, Dr. Leon, uh, excuse me, Henry Morris, has a PhD, University of Minnesota, was the, as I shared with you a couple weeks ago, he was the chair of the Department of Engineering at Virginia Tech University, and he was a dedicated follower of Christ. And he believed in the scriptures. And he wrote a commentary, by the way, of the book of Genesis as a layman. And he wrote a, wrote a commentary on the book of Revelation as a layman. And it's phenomenal. I've read both of them, and they're amazing. But this is what he said. He said, accurate modern geodetic measurements in recent years have proved that the earth actually does have four corners. Now, that's not Brother Danny who had a hard time science and math. This is somebody that knows a lot about science and math. These are the protuberances standing out from the basic geoid. That is, the basic spherical shape of the earth. The earth is not really a perfect sphere after all, but it is slightly flattened at the poles. Its equatorial equatorial bulge is presumably caused by the earth's axial rotation and so therefore it has its four corners after all. Thank you Dr. Morris. He's a whole lot smarter than me. All I know is there are four angels, one on the north, one on the south, somebody help me, one on the east and one on the west. And there are these four angels holding back in the winds, if you will, of the judgment of God. Now, don't picture in your mind that these angels, and by the way, when it says the angels are holding back, it's the word kratos. They're exerting great strength because they're about to unleash judgment, the winds of judgment. Now, they're not preventing God from doing His work. They're at God's disposal. Nobody can prevent omnipotent God. God is about to do what God's going to do. But right before He does, He sends this angel who ascends out of the east, and this angel says, wait, do not damage the earth, the trees, and the seas until, until I've done the work of God. God has sent me to seal on the forehead 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And so before the winds of judgment come, allow me to do my work. And that's precisely what we see happening. I was reading one commentary, I prepared this message a couple of weeks ago as I was out last week, but one commentary said that he sees these four angels as restraining, as restraining and holding back the evil so that this angel can come and do his bidding. Like 2 Thessalonians 2.7 where it says the Holy Spirit restrains evil. Can you imagine what planet Earth would be like today if the Holy Spirit wasn't restraining the evil that is so abundant in our, in our world? And yet, these angels, they're holding it back, and this one angel comes to seal on the foreheads these 144,000 witnesses. Now, it's interesting, this word spagus. It's the Greek word, it's seal, but it literally means, as one writer puts it, it is a signet ring, all right? Watch this. 
It's a ring of a despot. It's the ring of a monarch. It's the ring of a king. And when this king in these oriental countries, when he would take that ring and he would implant that ring, that signet ring of seal on a document, then it bore the kingly seal and therefore it was untouchable. And this angel says, wait, wait, because God is about to seal on the forehead of these mighty, austere 12,000 times 12,000 from all the tribes of Israel, and God is going to unleash them on planet earth, and nobody will be able to harm them until they have done their work. So the seal of God, 144,000 witnesses. What is the seal of God? What, what do y'all think it is? Now don't answer that. Some of y'all are about to answer me, and I, this is a rhetorical question. All right? what, do, what do you think it is? I think Revelation 144, I mean, excuse me, Revelation 14.1 tells us when it says, Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion. Now watch this. This is Revelation chapter 14. And John sees these 144,000, after they have done their evangelism and their witnesses, they're probably martyred and killed. Okay? God preserved them for a time, but when you read 14 in its context, you'll see that Mount Zion here is a reflection of heaven, and they are in heaven. And with him, 144,000, watch this, with their father's name written on their foreheads. So somehow God has set them aside. He's isolated them and given them this seal. Now verse 4 tells us the number of those sealed, and that would be 144,000 protected by God. They're going to do God's bidding. They're going to preach the gospel, I believe. They're going to get involved in missionary work. And it's my opinion... It's in my opinion that at this time, if it has not already been established, then the gospel of the kingdom will go throughout the earth. Because Jesus said the gospel will be preached throughout the earth, and then the end will come. Now, the rapture has already happened, but the end has not come. Jesus is coming in Revelation chapter 19. So who are these 144,000? I'm telling you, church, I have read all kinds of wacky ideas. I'm telling you, I, I've read people that said, well, first of all, they're not Jews after all. And I'm like, excuse me, why would John go through such great lengths to tell us of all these tribes? You said, but I thought 10 of the tribes were lost. No, they weren't. <laughs> there they are. 12 tribes of Israel. Some say, well, that's the church. And I'm not a replacement theologian. I don't believe the church has replaced Israel. In fact, I believe that God has a plan for Israel. I believe there's still coming a day when most of Israel, the Bible says all of Israel will be saved. There's coming a day, I believe it happens in the Great Tribulation. Where, have you noticed that hardly a Jew believes on Jesus today? Now, not every, but most Jews, by the way, most Jews are atheists. Many Jews are atheists. They will tell you that. I am a Jew culturally. I'm a Jew racially. But most Jews practice, they don't practice Judaism. They don't. But there's coming a day when most of them are going to be converted to Christ. And you're going to see this. Well, I hope you don't see it. I hope you're not here during the Great Tribulation. But they're going to believe on Christ and, and they're going to be, going to be converted. So who are they? I believe they, these Jewish evangelists are going to preach the gospel during the Great Tribulation. And here's what some people believe. They believe, the Seventh-day Adventists believe, 
that the 144,000 are only those who observe the Sabbath on Saturday, and they're the only ones that God's going to come and get. And I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry, I just don't, I don't see that. I don't believe that. The Jehovah Witnesses. They say that they are the 144,000 witnesses. But something strange happened to the Jehovah Witnesses. They grew beyond 144,000, and it messed their whole theology up. And they're like, oh, well, now they're just called extras. I'm like, okay, whatever. Why, wouldn't, wouldn't, it just be, wouldn't it be easy just to say these people of the 12 tribes of Israel, they are Jewish people, and you look at chapter 7, verse 9, and you, I mean, excuse me, 8, verse 9, 7, verse 9, I had it right the first time. You, you see all these multitudes of people coming to faith in Christ, and it's right on the heels of these 144,000 Jewish uh, witnesses. So, let, let me read this to you, Romans chapter 11, 26 and 27. This is in your Bibles, by the way, okay? I didn't make this up. Let's go to, let's go to Romans. So all of Israel will be saved. I tell you, that just gives me great joy because I love the Jewish people. I love the fact that God chose them. I love the fact that Palestine is their land. I love Israel. And the Bible says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I do that every day. I did it this morning. And glory to God, one day, this day has not happened. Remember Paul said, I would die basically and go to hell if my Jewish brethren could be saved. Now that's the passion of Paul when he says, and glory to God, one day all of Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I believe that day is going to happen and I believe in due part it's going to happen during the great tribulation. So let's look at these 12 tribes for just a moment. Now when you read your Bibles there are almost 20 lists of the 12 tribes of Israel. Almost 20. None of the 20 match what I just read to you in Revelation 7 verses uh, 5 through 8. And I don't get so caught up on that. I'm not so caught up on the right order and so forth. In fact, it's not always the same even in the Old Testament. For example, the firstborn of Jacob uh, was, was Reuben. And Reuben oftentimes is listed number one because he's the firstborn. But in this list and in other lists, it's the name Judah. Judah is mentioned first. I believe he's mentioned first because that is the tribe of Jesus. And so he's saying, of the tribe of Judah, there will be 12,000 witnesses. Notice a couple other interesting things with me. First of all, Levi is mentioned, but Dan is not. And I'm kind of sad about that. That's my name, Dan. Dan's not there. The tribe of Dan is omitted here initially, and here's why. When you read in the Old Testament, especially in Judges chapter 1, Judges chapter 18, you notice that Dan was committed to idolatry. And many people believe that he is omitted here, his tribe, because of the gross immorality and idolatry. However, in wrath, remember mercy. When you see this list again in the Bible in Ezekiel 48, Dan is mentioned. The tribe of Dan is mentioned in the millennial kingdom, which to me is just another example of all throughout Scripture. I mean, I think Martin Luther said it best. Martin Luther, the great German Lutheran theologian, he said, when you read your Bibles, you must always keep this dichotomy in your mind, law and grace, law and grace. God is a God of justice. God is a God of law, yes, 
but he is a God of grace and a God of forgiveness. Dan is omitted, and then glory to God, Dan is included toward the end. Well, when you can include the millennial listing. Who else is not in here? I just found this interesting. I'm going to give you all some uh, genealogy 101. What else do we have in here? This is, this is interesting to me. So you got Joseph and Manasseh are mentioned, but Manasseh's brother Ephraim is not mentioned, who was also given to idolatry when you read in 2 Samuel and Isaiah. He said, Brother Danny, why would you do that to us? Why would you take us through that? Because we, we I mean, really, guys, I take you through that because I made a commitment in January when I got saved many years ago, that if God saves me and calls me to preach, I will always preach the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, then I'm going to address it. I'm going to give you theories. I'm going to give you knowledge. I've been accused so many times of preaching over people's heads. And I just want you all to know, that grieves me to hear that. if, If I preach over your head, the only thing that demonstrates is that I'm a bad shot, okay? Because I'm not into preaching over people's head. If I use words like phenomenological language, I hope you caught within that. That is just a human way of speaking to describe not the scientific fact, but just the way that we speak. And when I use these Greek words, and man, you should have seen this series of messages I preached in my last church. Man, I had geography, I had history, I had maps, and and I just love teaching the Word of God. So I shared these tribes with you Tribology, how about that? Tribology 101. All these tribes, because I promise you, there are skeptics and there are cynics and there are atheists and agnostics, and they will go to any place in the Bible that they can to try to find errors, to bring objections. And I would love for you to be able to give a defense for your faith. So, who are these people? I think the most natural, unforced interpretation is these are Jews converted to Christ. And I like the way David Jeremiah puts this when he says, I have watched Billy Graham crusades, and I've been overwhelmed by the hundreds and thousands of people who respond to a simple, straightforward gospel message. Can you imagine how it will be when those Jewish Billy Grahams begin to preach? Stadiums will not be able to hold the masses on that day. As they leave the sites of these evangelistic rallies, the Gestapo of the Antichrist will probably be waiting at the gates, searching for those who have the seal of God. Oh, there's coming an ominous day. It could happen in our lifetime. It just seems to me that it, it seems to me like it will happen in our lifetime. That as things continue to worsen, that Jesus Christ comes and he takes his church. I hope Nicolas Cage and the guys got it right. I really do. I hope there's a rapture. And I hope that Jesus takes us out of here before this period of great tribulation. But if he does not, let's say he does not, and I'm wrong, and I misread Scripture, then I hope hope that I'm one of the faithful ones who will preach Christ. Listen to me carefully. If you have not noticed it already, to stand for Christ and to preach Christ and to live for Christ in certain parts of this world, is the most dangerous thing you can do. But I'm so grateful to God that if I suffer with Him, then I will reign with Him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, there's something about His name. And you know, I I think about this often, and, and people ask me, they say, but do you really think you're right? 
Do you think that Jesus Christ is really the only way to God? What about all the Muslims? What about all the Buddhists? What about all the Mormons? What about all of these people who believe in a different Jesus than you do? And then I just say, well, I may be wrong, but I'm going to believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And so that's 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 where we stand. So this is what I'd like to do as I close my sermon today. And thank you, by the way. You guys are amazing. Uh, you, you listen so attentively. You, you think so deeply. I think you can hear a pin drop in here sometimes because it's not because of me, but I believe it's because of this material because we don't ever hear sermons on Revelation. We have no idea. We, for all you know, you'd say, that's the 144th. I guess the Jehovah Witnesses got it right. Let me ask you this. Are all the Jehovah Witnesses Jews? No. No. Look at it within its context, all right? If you're here today, let me say what I, let me, let me end the way I began. And there's never been a time you placed your faith in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation where he takes upon the wrath of God for you so that you are forgiven and cleansed. If you've never done that, I invite you to do that today. You say, what do I have to do? you got to believe. You say, what do I have to believe? You have to believe that Jesus Christ is the unique, only begotten Son of God who lived a perfect life, died a vicarious, substitutionary death, was placed in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead. He is alive. He is alive, and he is coming again one day. And you can meet him as judge. You can meet him as your foe, but I would much rather you meet him as your friend, as your Savior, and as your King. Would you do that right now? Would you say, God, I'm a sinner. Come into my life. I believe in Jesus Christ, and I confess him with my mouth. I believe in my heart that you, Father, raised him from the dead. And according to Romans 10, 9, I am saved. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. As we have a time of prayer and a time of invitation, I will invite our pastors and our counselors and folks who will come to the altar and we'll be available to you. We will receive you. We'll pray with you, encourage you so that you can know God in in this day of mercy, in this day of compassion, you can be born again. So, Father, that is my prayer today. I ask you, Lord, if there is one person here, and I believe there are dozens of people here, that have never given their lives to you, I pray that today is the day, O oh God, that they would say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. In fact, why don't you do that right now? With your heads bowed and with your eyes closed. Why don't you pray with me this simple gospel prayer? And if you're listening on television, if you're watching us on the Internet, then I would ask you right now, so just, just stop where, where you are and what you're doing. Bow your heads, and I invite you to pray this very simple prayer with me. Would you pray it with me? And mean it with all of your heart. You pray quietly, silently, and I'm going to pray it out loud. And you can repeat after me. Say, Dear God in heaven, I believe. I believe that you are a God of justice. And I'm so grateful that you're a God of mercy. Go ahead and tell him. Say, God, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you wash me with your precious blood that was shed for me? I believe. I believe and I trust you. I turn, I turn from my sin, from my sin. And I invite you, King Jesus, the ruler, the awesome God, I invite you into my life right here, right now, October 5, 2014.
Now with your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, if you've prayed and you've asked the Lord to come into your heart, I want to rejoice with you. I, I want you, before you leave, you tell me, you tell somebody in this church your decision so that we can encourage you, so we can disciple you, follow up with you. Some of you have believed in the Lord, you need to be baptized. You need to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. This is the first Sunday in many weeks that we have not actually seen somebody be baptized. So I want to encourage you today, if you've professed your faith in Christ, to follow Him in believers' baptism. That is your public demonstration of your faith. That is your way of telling the world you are not ashamed. You'll live for Him, you'll die for Him. It's your way of saying, I believe in Jesus, His life, death, burial, and resurrection. So believe, be baptized, and belong. Some of you need a church home. All of you need a church home. If you're here today and you don't have a place, a, a group that you can call, that's my church family, and I want to invite you to come. Let one of our counselors, let one of our pastors share with you what it means to be a member at Great Hills. Now, just not anybody can join our church. I, I want you to know this. N nobody can just walk up and say, I want to be a member, and we say, oh, that's wonderful. We know what we do is we sit down with you. And we encourage you and we share with you what that means to be a member of our church, the responsibilities inherent in that. And we ask you to walk through a new members class with us, and we want to see if you're really serious. And if you are, then we want you to come. We want you to link arms with us as we seek to preach Christ crucified, buried, resurrected. So, Father, we thank you so much for each person that is here today. Lord, I thank you that you have spoken to us because your word says that your word never returns void. It always accomplishes what it needs to accomplish. Lord, I thank you for the skeptic that heard the message today. That God, the only thing they ever thought of when they thought of you is that you were a God that was mad at them. But you're not. You are a God of justice, but you're also a God of grace. And if we will ask for forgiveness, you will gladly forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So bless our musicians, Lord. Bless Corey as he leads us now in this song. And I pray, God, that there be lives changed. For the glory of God and for eternity at this very moment. For I pray this in Jesus' name.